is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Rob Archer in for Charles Feldman. Election Day is here. It is the California primary. Voters across the state are choosing who they would like to see on the final ballot in November. We're going to go in-depth into the key races up and down the state that will have a significant impact moving forward. New data could be a warning about the economy. People are not saving as much as they did last year. The cryptocurrency market could be regulated in the U.S. if a new bill makes it out of Congress. We're going to explain how that would work. And a new bulletin from the Homeland Security Department warns about copycat mass shooters and even abortion extremists. The way doctors treat cancer patients could change thanks to a couple new studies. We'll talk about those. FDA advisors approving a new COVID vaccine that uses old technology. Top Gun Maverick has gotten a lot of positive reviews. Instead of relying heavily on CGI, the actors were sent up to film in the real fighter jets, and we will talk to the guy who trained Tom Cruise and the others to fly. Start start with the uh, primary election. Matt Lasigne is a political science professor at Long Beach State, an expert on California politics. Thank you for joining us today. Well, in addition to uh, a very low early vote turnout, uh, what we kind of feel in the water is that what voters are voting are a little bit surly right now with inflation and rising crime rates. Is that a sense of what's happening across the state? Yeah, I would say uh, like a shell-shocked feeling is probably hitting most uh, Californians and Americans, whether it's the economic stress uh, or just some of this really disheartening news. So is that better for some candidates and worse for others, or just just uh, low turnout just translates to not a lot of people voting and the numbers stay about the same? Yeah, I would say it. Uh, what you're going to get is uh, almost like if you had a reduction, right, or, or, or boil this down to kind of the serum, it's going to be the, the hardened core of, of um, habitual voters. And so I wouldn't say that the low turnout so much you know, benefits a candidate outside of uh, those with name recognition. And so if the turnout were higher, I would expect the folks with the best name recognition in this type of environment would do well. But with a really low uh, turnout number, it's going to produce a similar result. I was reading one of those electoral pundits from over in the East Coast, uh, taking a look across the country, looking at California, and said that uh, California could be witnessing uh, what he called a political earthquake. Uh, although I, I don't know how much of an earthquake we're going to see if, if voting turnout is this low. But he was warning about, you know, recalling the uh, very uh, uh, left-leaning, progressive-minded uh, DA in, in San Francisco and, of course, the George Gascon recall happening here in L.A. Uh, do you see an earthquake coming in California, if not in this primary, perhaps in the general? You know, as exciting as that sounds, uh, for sort of news copy, I, I don't see an earthquake. Um, that is, uh, obviously, especially for an outsider using that terminology, um, is, uh, is something that could shake up your viewership. But, um, I, I, I think this, the, the, the recall aside, I think what you're going to see is a pretty steady march toward some of the policy, um, reforms, let's say in the criminal justice arena, uh, you know, whether you're talking about a specific candidate as uh, Boudin or Gascon um, or just, you know, a generic ba- ballot, uh, the support for uh, police reforms or criminal justice reform uh, remains high. I think some of what we're seeing in the recall is um, Californians are undecided about who's going to carry that message. 
What about the sheriff's race here? There are a bunch of candidates running against Sheriff Villanueva. Does that mean that he could just win it outright tonight if he gets over 50 percent of the votes uh, because they split the rest of it? You know, I wouldn't be surprised. And there's a there's actually a, 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 a novel dance here between what we're seeing in San Francisco and, and uh, Los Angeles. And that is the politics of criminal justice reform. So if we put the actual policy proposals and enforcement on the shelf. And just look at how uh, judges or DAs or the sheriffs in this case, how they run for re-election. It's much easier to run as a tough on crime, maybe a little brash, um, you know, may not play by all the rules. It's way easier to get re-elected in that space than to get re-elected really proposing to change the status quo. So uh, that wouldn't surprise me if he reached 50 percent, even with a crowded field. Matt Lasenye, political science professor, Long Beach State, experts on state politics. Right now, people's savings accounts are shrinking. The amount of disposable income that people save was just 4.4% in April. That's the lowest since September of 2008. That was the start of the Great Recession. Is this a warning sign or are people just spending more? Well, Krista Myers is editor-in-chief of TheBalance.com, which helps people with personal finances. Thank you for joining us. I think the first thought that people would have when they hear this is like, well, inflation, everything is costing more. But is it is it that or is it a combination of people are spending a little bit more money right now? Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, So we do have inflation continuing to go up, it seems, every single month, although it did decline a little bit in the month of April to 8.3% from 8.5% in March. So a slight reprieve, but not too much. But also folks, you know, were at home over the last two years. They they didn't get to go outside. They didn't get to go to restaurants. They didn't get to travel. And they have actually been spending more, essentially, totally undeterred by uh, the amount that inflation has been increasing over the last several months. And so I think it is a little bit of both. They are willing to reach into their pockets and go to the stores and, and to go and, and travel. Uh, and they're also just taking that hit due to inflation. And we also saved plenty while we weren't going places, right? And then- the stimulus checks didn't the rates go sky high when all of those went out people had a bunch of money in the bank they said okay well i feel good about things and and now like you said things are opening up people want to get out there and uh gas prices are high and plane tickets are expensive but you know what i'm gonna go anyways (laughs) <laughs> that is such a good point. So to that, to what you just said, the savings rates being sky high, it was nearly 35% in April of 2020, right? No one was going anywhere. No one had anything really to spend their money on. And they were also just essentially sitting on that cash in case things got worse. Now that 35% was a huge spike, even from the months prior when we weren't in the pandemic. So I do think that we are seeing a lot of consumers out there saying, you know, what my wages have gone up because right now employers are pretty much begging workers to to come to the office and are offering pay raises and they're offering bonuses. And so folks are saying, hey, you know, I have a little bit more money in my pocket now and I'm tired of being inside. And so I do want to go out. So it doesn't matter that inflation is more expensive. It doesn't matter that I have to spend more on hotels or to dine out. I'm going to do it anyway. Well, you know, you got the gas price issue, too. Uh, gas prices going up and up and up. And at some point, uh, you know, I wonder if we're going to reach a tipping point. And if people stop driving places, will we see kind of like that pandemic effect again, where people might start saving more again? 
Well, people actually already are doing that. Uh, gas demand is declining. Um, it's it's dropped about 6% since before the pandemic. And we are seeing those deliveries of petroleum to those gas stations starting to decrease because folks are you know, saying, hey, I can't afford to spend more than the minimum hourly minimum wage on a tank of gas, on, on just one gallon of gas, essentially. So we're actually already starting to see that. And I will also say that even though folks still are going going out and spending money at the stores. I mean, even today we had Target come out, a major retailer, and they said, hey guys, we actually have extra inventory because consumers weren't purchasing in all of the categories that they used to. So we are seeing consumers starting to change some of their habits in response to the inflation. And then of course you add in the mix of a lot of economists saying, hey, a recession is coming next year and consumers are taking notice and they're starting to listen and they are changing some of their spending habits as a result. But I won't say that their spending or rather their savings rate being 4.4% is necessarily the the massive or giant alarm bell uh, that things are going to go belly up. I saw somebody tweet that uh, the target effect is the ultimate measure of the economy because, uh, you know, if you're a target shopper that you can go in there for toothpaste and spend $100 on anything else. But if you actually stick to your list, then that's a whole different story. The economy has changed. I am that I am that Target uh, shopper. I'm not going to lie. I don't think I've ever gone into Target with an with a mind of purchasing only one or two items and only come out with one or two items. That store is very good at getting you to at getting you to buy a lot more than you thought you it's were. A it is place. almost a cultural uh, it's almost a cultural point. So I think that it, that point, anecdotally at least, is very well taken. If you're going in and you're actually sticking to that list. That means something is definitely shifting. Kristen Myers, editor-in-chief, TheBalance.com. Coming up, the two studies could possibly transform how doctors treat cancer patients. And we're going to talk to the person behind all those cool fighter jet scenes in Top Gun Maverick. The film's aerial coordinator explains how it was all done and how the actors kind of learned to fly. Right now, though, the cryptocurrency world's kind of a free-for-all. A lot of people call it the Wild West. No major regulations like the stock market. That could change thanks to a new bill in Congress. It would classify digital assets as commodities like wheat or oil. Gabriella Cush, CEO of the Global Digital Asset and Cryptocurrency Association with us. Gabriella, thanks. So what do you think of this bill with the uh, caveat that even the senators proposing it saying, yeah, this is kind of a, a starting point of framework and, and this could change over the next year or so while we work on this thing? You know, a lot of what we're seeing come out of this bill helps to clarify what we've seen as a ton of ambiguity and complexity in the industry. And hopefully by bringing that clarity, we'll be able to keep firms here in the United States building and growing and contributing to jobs. Now, uh, it's some of this clarity that the government could bring to it. Uh, you know, one of the jokes about cryptocurrency was the wildly varying prices for like what a Bitcoin was worth. Like you could give somebody one dollar in Bitcoin and they give you change of five hundred dollars because that's how much it changed in between when you handed it over and when they gave you the change for it. So it, it, is that one of the things the government could be able to control or is that just part of the nature of what it is? you're talking about is some of the volatility that we see with crypto. And I think the one to $500 is a, a bit of an exaggeration, but I think what we're looking at is the opportunity to really mature the asset class, to bring around some regulatory guardrails and to really help create consumer protection in this space. So it's, it's very exciting. And I think that there's a lot of opportunities both for economics as well as social outcomes. So 
underbanked, unbanked, extension of access to finance um, and financial inclusion are all part of, you know, what is envisioned in this bill. What are some of the guardrails that you think are needed? We look at it from, you know, taxonomy. So this bill talks first and foremost about what are digital assets, what are stable coins, you know, how to define these things out. Um, we look at as a second piece of this, we call it our building blocks, um, looking at, you know, the need for stable coin and payment token guardrails, and then also looking at custody for digital assets. So if I own digital assets, I need to know that I can access them when I need them, that they are safe and secure, um, and that when I want to remove them and put them into my own personal property, I have that ability. And lastly, the coolest part about this bill and something that we are extremely excited about is just the opportunity for a complementary system of self-regulation and a study to kind of take a look at how to build out an SRO or self-regulatory organization for the industry. How do uh, cryptocurrency adherents uh, feel about this? Uh, Part of the appeal of it for some was the fact that, you know, it didn't have government oversight or control. Uh, Do they see this as uh, the government encroaching on the cryptocurrency world? less about the government encroaching and more about this industry maturing. And so recognizing that as more and more mainstream people get involved, you know, they don't want their elderly grandmother to be taken advantage of. They don't want um, there to be, you know, just, you know, some level of uh, way in which they can bind or bound some of the transactions that are taking place and to be able to ensure that both investors are protected and that the innovation that we see that is so dynamic and exciting about this industry that it can really take off. Gabriella Cush, CEO of the Global Digital Assets and Cryptocurrency Association. You are listening to KDX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Rob Archer, in today for Charles Feldman. The feds are worried about domestic terrorists following the mass shooting at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. Homeland Security Department's putting out a terror threats bulletin warning of copycat attacks. That bulletin also mentions the possibility of violence from extremists on both sides of the abortion debate once the Supreme Court issues a ruling on that case out of Mississippi. It might be overturning Roe v. Wade. With us now is Kenneth Gray, retired FBI special agent and senior lecturer of criminal justice, homeland security, and emergency management at the University of New Haven. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it feels like I, we've been through volatile times before where there were threats of violence from different factions uh, from inside the country and, and, of course, outside the country with the uh, overseas terror threat. But it seems to be extremely volatile right now as as we've all gone into our bubbles and we believe our own sets of truths and, and our, our, our truths are so ingrained in us now that some people are willing to commit violence because of their disagreement with others about it. Is it, are things more volatile now with these threats of copycat shooters and people just wanting to disrupt life? Well, Rob, I'm not quite sure that there are more of a threat, but here's the thing is that people live on the internet. And so for some people uh, who are staying on some of these forums, such as the 4chans, the 8chans, or some of the... Uh, the, the other uh, social media outlets like that, they live in this type of environment that it helps uh, develop their, their ideation of wanting to carry out an act. They, they develop a grievance, they build upon that and get this ideation, and they are uh, spurred to move on that idea. 
So what do we do with that then? I mean, how do you monitor that? How do you try and be on the other side of it and act quickly or put a stop to these things before they happen? Because it's not a, a, it's a relatively new phenomenon, but it's not brand new. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, if you look at if you look at some of the past mass shootings, um, for instance, Britain Tarrant down in New Zealand, he was actually motivated by the actions that he saw uh, in Norway on the part of Anders uh, Breivik, and uh, that uh, and he was the one who uh, talked about the Great Replacement Theory, uh, motivating him. And then we see the Buffalo shooter. Uh, here, also talking about the Great Replacement Theory, and he's motivated by uh, Brenton Tyrant. But these were very separated at times, so copycats do not have to occur within days, weeks, or months. It can be years. You talk about the uh, Great Replacement Theory. Uh, it's been around a while, but it, it's all built on the same foundation, that uh, someone is being warned that you and your culture or your ethnic group or your whatever is going to be wiped out by them. So it makes you feel like, well, times are desperate. If I'm going to protect myself and my family and my loved ones and my community, I have to commit violence to stop them. Is is this part of a foundation that's really reaching out and infecting a lot of people and creating this uh, threat of copycat violence? You know, it's interesting that the person who wrote the the original book, uh, The Great Replacement, is a guy by the name of Camus. And Camus, when asked about it, said he did not believe that the ones who were uh, referring to his book ever read what he wrote. What he actually wrote was that he was observing what was happening in France and the fact that Frenchmen were being replaced by Middle Easterns uh, and also uh, people from uh, the Far East. And so he did not advocate violence to correct this problem. Now, Brenton Tyrant, uh, Anders Brevik, they were uh, motivated with the idea of uh, carrying out acts to capture the attention of the public to spur them to do something on their own. And so these were, uh, were people who thought that they would be the vanguard, the ones who would start the process. Uh, the Buffalo shooter... Uh, he was motivated by Brenton Tyrant, so uh, he may think that he was going to, to start something. If you even look at Timothy McVeigh, Timothy McVeigh was attacking the U.S. government when he set the off the truck bomb in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City with the idea that he was going to start a race war uh, with that and start a war against the U.S. government. We were talking to somebody the other day about some of the forums and what gets posted after, uh, you know, events like the mass shootings happen. And, and the the topic was some people probably post things that they, they truly believe and they're way far down a conspiracy hole. And then others maybe just want to troll and put up something. And so they say, oh, look, it was a false flag. But it doesn't matter what the explanation is if somebody on the other side reading that believes it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh Nine, probably 99.9% of all the posts that you see on things like the, uh, the um, political uh, forum on 4chan, uh, that's all, I'll use the term crap posting instead of the actual term. Uh, the crap posting, people putting things up that, uh, that they do just simply to get other people uh, all uh, spun up over these things. 
with no intent to do something. And that, to your original question, is why the um, Office of Intelligence and Analysis is in a position where they are making guesses based upon these crap postings, is that they don't have good data. You need to have good data to be able to form intelligence. This is not good data. Stuff placed on 4chan, on 8chan, is not reliable. And so it looks like they are guessing when they put out these bulletins, but they are only uh, using what information they have available to them at this time. Kenneth Gray, retired FBI Special Agent, Senior Lecturer, Criminal Justice, Homeland Security, Emergency Management, uh, University of New Haven. Fourth COVID vaccine could become available soon here in the U.S. The FDA advisory panel has voted to approve the Novavax vaccine. And then by now, you know how it goes. FDA goes next, a full FDA, and then the CDC director signs off uh, before the shots go into the arms. Now, this works differently than the two mRNA vaccines and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But how effective is it at stopping COVID? Well, Deborah Fuller is a vaccine developer and microbiologist at the University of Washington. She runs her own vaccine lab at the school. Thank you for joining us. So what is, uh, explain for the layperson, what's the major difference between the mRNA vaccines and this Novavax vaccine? Right. So let me tell you what the similarities are first, is that they both work by inducing antibody responses that are going to interfere with the ability of the virus to infect your cells. Uh, And there's a lot of similarities between them in the sense that they start with the same material. They start with a genetic material that's going to instruct a cell to make the protein that's going to instruct your body to make the antibody responses. Uh, But the big difference between the Novavax vaccine and the mRNA vaccines is that with Novavax, they take the genetic material and they put it into cells that are located in a lab and they ask those cells in the lab to produce the protein and then they purify the protein and they put that into your body. With the mRNA vaccines is different because what they do is they actually take the, the code and they put that into your own cells and ask your own cells to produce the protein. So in a sense, with the mRNA vaccines, you become the factory for your own protein, whereas with the Novavax, they produce the protein in a factory and then give that to you. So for lack of a better word here, who's the market for this one? Is it people who are somehow concerned about the mRNA because it's still they've deemed it you know too new of a technology and this is kind of the old fashioned way? I have heard a lot of people uh, hesitate in taking the mRNA vaccines precisely for the reason because they just felt it was too new and and they don't uh, understand how it works. Uh, A lot of the concerns are not supported by the science, but they're concerns all the same. And, you know, whatever makes people hesitate to take vaccines, if we can turn the tables and say, hey, here's a new, uh, not a new one, but it's a, a, a vaccine that is based on established technology. You've had vaccines against, for example, hepatitis B or pertussis. It's the same technology that's being used to produce this vaccine, something you're familiar with. And if that gives you more comfort in terms of taking it, then then, uh, that would be great. Do you think that's really going to work uh, for some people who are hesitant about uh, vaccines? I mean, some of the vaccine hesitancy comes from the conspiracy theory that the coronavirus itself was kind of a hoax, that it was some kind of social experiment that, uh, you know, they were using it to control people. So is is an old school vaccine enough to convince them? And and how do we reach those people or do we have enough people vaccinated already? 
I think those people who are so far off the tracks as to actually believe those falsehoods, uh, that's, those are, that's the hardest group to, to possibly reach uh, you know, with any sort of vaccine. I don't necessarily see that they'll, they'll jump onto the bandwagon with this one any more than any of the others. But I do think that what this vaccine can target is the people who are on the fence just simply because they didn't trust the, the, how quickly the mRNA vaccines were produced and because it is a new technology, it hasn't been out there before and, and they were uncomfortable with that. Do they, they being Novavax, want to use this as a, and is it a two-dose kind of thing? And is it just for the primary set or are they also looking at it as a possible booster? Yeah, the booster immunization is an interesting thing, particularly for me, because I've been studying for many years uh, how vaccines, two different types of vaccines uh, work and when you use them in combination. So I think they're eyeing the booster immunization, not in just, you know, people who haven't been vaccinated yet, but also boost, giving booster immunizations to those who have already received, for example, the mRNA vaccine. There's some uh, interesting studies out there in my lab, as well as many other labs, to suggest that the combination of two different types of vaccines like that could provide you with even better immunity than being immunized with, uh, uh, you know, only one type of vaccine. We don't quite understand how that works in the body, but for some reason, your body just likes to see uh, vaccines presented in two different ways. Uh, and so if you were primed with the mRNA vaccine and have the option to get an, uh, are eligible for a booster, uh, the Novavax vaccine provides a, a new alternative for you that uh, might be interesting uh, to take. I think there still needs to be a lot of studies to understand whether there's a synergy between them. Uh, certainly, you can probably get at least as good of a response, if potentially better, by getting boosted with the Novavax vaccine. Uh, what are the side effects that we're seeing from the Novavax? Yeah, so the side effects are very similar to what uh, we've seen with any other sort of vaccine, which is, has to do with just uh, muscle soreness and, and uh, you know, a little bit of uh, 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 reactions there in terms of short term. There is some reports that there were some uh, 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 low frequency of myocarditis, uh, which is something that was uh, observed with the mRNA vaccine. That's that's sort of a slight uh, 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 inflammation uh, that's in the heart, and is is very very rare. Certainly, much much rarer than what uh, occurs with actually getting infected with COVID nineteen. Um, uh, it's an inflammatory response uh, that is very, very transient. Um, and so it's not considered uh, a, a very high risk, but it is uh, something that I think that they observed in the clinical trials that they're having to look at um, that, uh, that might be, um, you know, potential side effect, but very, very rare. Quickly, before we let you go, um, are they still looking at what kind of recipe to give us for the fall? If we're all going to need new shots, you know, kind of what variant or do they bundle a couple together, that kind of thing to, to get us through what could be a, another winter wave if we see that? Absolutely. We're, we're going to continue to look at that when we come into the, the fall. It's just like with the flu that becomes now COVID and flu season. And a couple of things they're looking at is whether or not they're going to need to update the vaccine to match the Omicron or whatever variant happens to be circulating. And I know both mRNA vaccines as well as protein are being tested for that right now. But also one of the things they're looking at is combining a flu and a COVID-19 vaccine into one shot. And I think both Novavax as well as the mRNA vaccines are working on that. Deborah Fuller is a vaccine developer, microbiologist, University of Washington. 
You are listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Rob Archer, in for Charles Feldman. For decades now, three most common ways to treat cancer, radiation, chemotherapy, surgery. In some cases, it was all three used to stop a cancer from spreading. But two new studies might change treatment in a big way. They found some cancer patients can safely skip radiation or chemotherapy after surgery. That would mean no more bad side effects from chemo and radiation. With us now is Dr. Jack Jacob, medical oncologist at Memorial Care Orange Coast Medical Center in Fountain Valley. Thank you for joining us. So is the idea here that uh, perhaps there are some cancer treatments that uh, doctors don't need to be quite so aggressive about? Uh, That's right on point. Uh, That's exactly the case. So uh, it it speaks to a scenario of what's called patient or disease heterogeneity. No two people are the same. No two cancers in two people are the same. They're different on a on multiple levels, including on a genetic basis level, which may be the most purest form of difference. And those differences uh, predict a lot of things. Um, they could predict uh, recurrence. They could predict uh, curability. Um, they could predict response or lack thereof to treatment. So there's a lot in the genes, uh, both in the normal person and also in the cancer cell. And so uh, what these investigators uh, have shown uh, and Similar to where the field in general is moving towards is that those differences where we before couldn't really exploit and we kind of treated everyone in similar fashion because we were limited in our understanding of the cancer cell um, are a lot different today, and we could actually exploit it. We could actually limit treatment to patients who actually seem to benefit from it or would stand to benefit from it and avoid treatment and side effects in those patients who historically you would have given treatment to but today, because of this information, you would not give it to because it won't help them. So this is a very significant finding and moves the field forward. And there's a big momentum. It's not just this trial. There's many different trials, not this colon breast. There's many trials in this space where they're looking to avoid or reduce the intensity of therapy and, um, and also to define what is the best response to treatments and all kinds of different things that you can get from these cell, cell-based uh, assays and diagnostics. And what's What's also important is that this test um, is actually a, a, an available test. This is not this, this is not a huge leap to get this test done. You mentioned it, it quickly there. The two that were studied in this case, and you said that the field is, is looking at broader things, but it was colon cancer and, and breast cancer, right? Correct. Okay. And obviously those are two. You're talking about the most common uh, cancer in, in women and the third most common cancer across the board in colon cancer. So these are very high-impact diseases, and... Um, yeah, so it's, it's pretty meaningful. And when you can cut down on, on the other treatments and you have a better predictor at not having to go down that route, we mentioned earlier, you know, you cut down a lot of side effects and it's a huge quality of life issue. If you don't have to go through chemo, you don't want to, but also it's a lot of unnecessary costs that you can avoid. Well, it, it's a cost basis from the, the insurer standpoint. There's obviously the quality of life and toxicity and side effect scenario with, from the patient standpoint, and also from the patient standpoint, some of these therapies have long-term consequences that we don't really appreciate but may come to fruition uh, 10, 15 years later, something like that. So there's a lot of things that we're avoiding by doing it, but at the end of the day, um, we're, we're trying to tailor therapy specific to the patient and their specific disease and not treating them across the board in a similar fashion. 
It's the old cliche of the uh, treatment is worse than the disease, and and a lot of in a lot of cases, you know, someone is diagnosed with a cancer, and they're told you're going to need chemotherapy or radiation, or whatever, and they opt not to do that. They opt to just they would rather die than go through the pain and the discomfort and the problems, the long term problems that come from chemotherapy and radiation. That's correct, and you you hit on the point. They 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 may opt to do that. And sometimes they defy the statistics and nothing ever happens. And maybe they're one of these individuals that would have been selected out if we had information like this. Um, and so it's, it's sort of a, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a scenario where um, uh, that has sort of um, definitely be discussed with patients because um, the, the, the approach of, you know, one size fits all historically, I mean, this isn't fairly new. This isn't, old stuff. This was happening only a few years ago until our better understanding of the diseases or these states. So now we, we try to be more specific to the patient and their tumor as opposed to recognizing them as one number in a case of a disease. Like, okay, 100 cancer patients are all treated the same way. Dr. Jack Jacob there, medical oncologist, Memorial Care, Orange Coast Medical Center in Fountain Valley. Doctor, thanks. Top Gun Maverick is uh, all movie watchers have been talking about lately. It has captivated audiences and critics, too, mostly praise the film. Big reason, the jets and how cool that is. And the actors were really filmed inside of those jets. So how did they pull that off? Well, they trained with the film's aerial coordinator. He's with us now, Kevin LaRosa, also a stunt pilot, worked on other big movies, Iron Man, The Avengers, Transformers 5. Kevin, thanks for being here. So as the story goes, Tom Cruise said, yes, I'll do this movie if we don't use CGI. I don't want green screens. I want people up in the planes. And uh, that's where you come in, yeah? Absolutely right, guys. Uh, hey, Mike. Hey, Bob. That's exactly what he said. Everything had to be real. No CGI. Everything had to be practical. Real. Sorry. Yeah, he's got a reputation for wanting to do stunts uh, for real. If you've seen any of the Mission Impossible movies and you think, wow, that's stuntman. No, that was Tom he's Cruise hanging on, hanging the, on the, the side plane, of the yeah. plane. <laughs> uh, so so uh, run us down a little bit uh, what this means. Uh, did, did, did the actors actually fly the planes or were the planes flown for them, but they were sitting in the plane as it was being filled, uh, filmed? How did that work? Well, all the uh, cast had to go through a pilot training program. We started them in Cessna 172s, then into extra 300s, which is a maneuverable aircraft capable of eight Gs, and then into the L-39. And that allowed all of the cast to build up a bit of aviator experience. By the time they got in the F-18s, they were seasoned pros, and that's why they look so good on the big screen. And to answer your question, the F-18s were flown by naval aviators with our cast sitting in the backseat. Did they ask the Navy if they could do it, and did the Navy say no? You know they did, absolutely. <laughs> but you, you, you train them all the way up, right, so they can be able to handle the G-forces, right? When that jet moves as fast as it does and when it swings around, you've got to make sure that you don't either faint or, uh, you know, lose your lunch. Yeah, I mean, Tom Cruise knew it best. I mean, he's an aviator to the truest to core. And as an actor as well, he knew that the uh, talent really needed to have experience in the aircraft. They're, they can't get sick up there while they're acting. They can't be worried about the type of flying they're doing. They need to focus on the performance so that it looks good on the big screen. So, yeah, to answer your question, we built up their G tolerance. We built up their G fatigue, and we made them seasoned aviator veterans. Now, when you uh, mention G for the layperson here, you mean that, you know, you're talking about gravity. Like when you bank and turn, you're pressed back into that seat really hard, and some people do kind of black out. So when you're talking about eight Gs, that's that's a lot of force. Oh, that's huge. It's so much force, in fact, that all the blood will literally drain out of your upper body, and that will put you to sleep. It'll make you pass out. And we had to train them 
for the physiological effects of that and how to counter it using the hick maneuver breathing technique and where you squeeze your muscles to keep that blood up. And it's a difficult thing to do. It'll make you tired. And if you don't do it right, you will pass out. How long did it take him to learn that? And was it an extra step for the actors to learn how to do that and not make a funny face because they've got to do their lines and do the show up there? Exactly right. Well, it took about three months. But those faces that you're seeing on the big screen, I mean, that is acting. But they're also really just processing those G-forces. That's why it looks so real is because it is real. Those are their real faces. That's them really trying to force and keep themselves awake and fight through while delivering an epic performance. That's a pretty tremendous feat right there. Yeah, there's something to be said for doing effects in a practical way, because while CGI has gotten very, very advanced and they can they can uh, make things look incredible with CGI, there are some things that just doesn't quite capture. Weight is one. And I remember Christopher Nolan, when he did the uh, film uh, Dunkirk, uh, went through the same process where he wanted the actors uh, to be inside the plane so that when the plane was banking and turning, the actors would react in a real way to what the G-forces were making their bodies do. So it wouldn't be just a matter of, okay, the actor's sitting on a set, now act like you're banking to the right. Oh, oh Star and Trek, it, you mean? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Star Trek. It, does, it doesn't look real. Now, they weren't dealing with the same kind of G-forces that the pilots in Top Gun were dealing, and you just explained some of that, uh, some of the work that you have to do, squeezing your muscles and, and, and uh, acting so as not to pass out. That's exactly correct. I mean, it, you can't fake this off, uh, you know, on a green screen. You just can't see the distortion in the face and your body. So that all had to be in cockpit. But I think the world is seeing it on the big screen. And that's why I think Top Gun is doing so well, as we all know that it's real. So to watch the movie, it's a lot more exciting to know that what we're seeing on the big screen is really happening. That makes it pretty, pretty awesome. Who was the most impressive for you that was on the cast? Oh, that's a good question. They all had their own strengths and weaknesses, but the one that really I think was a star in the group was Monica. She just excelled through uh, G tolerance training and she took right to it. And another one that I love is Glenn Powell, who actually took uh, his training so seriously. Uh, well, they all did, but Glenn kept it going and got his real FAA pilot's license. He's a certified pilot today. That's great. So, tell us about the uh, safety precautions that were taken to make sure that uh, nobody was hurt. Well, that's my job as an aerial coordinator. I mean, safety is first and uh, for most, first, you know, it's the, it's the primary thing on set, really. So we need to make sure that our people and our aircraft are coming back every single time. We really go in with a crawl, walk, run mentality. Every canyon we work in, every low level, every dogfight sequence, there's a progression to build up to it. And on Top Gun Maverick, we really wanted to set the bar high. We wanted to shoot aerials that had never been seen before. So everything had to be extremely dynamic and energetic. Uh, and we worked into it in a safe pace, and we took ourselves right to the line, um, which allowed our people and our aircraft to come home safely every single mission. And in terms of getting the shots, where were all the cameras mounted, inside, outside, all over the place, pretty much? That's a great question. I, in my world as an aerial coordinator, the best way to tell a story, Joe Kaczynski got this right on Top Gun Maverick, you need to have the perfect mix of onboard cameras. So that's that visceral feeling to ride onboard the F-18s, both inside and outside the jet. You need to have ground-based cameras so you can get those really fast flybys. And you need to have a couple different aerial platforms. I was the lead helicopter pilot as well as the jet pilot. We had an L-39 Cinejet as well as a Phenom camera jet. And all those different platforms mixed together uh, is the proper way to tell an aerial story like Top Gun Maverick. So cool. Kevin LaRosa, aerial coordinator for uh, the Top Gun movie. Also stunt pilot, worked on other big films, Iron Man, The Avengers, Transformers 5. Kevin, thanks. This has been In Depth for today. Back tomorrow. 